Good morning. This morning we're going to continue on our theme of our mission statement for the church. Uh, we're going to be shifting from Acts, which we've been going through for a while, to Colossians. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians 1, reading 1 through 14. If you could please stand. Colossians 1, 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from our God, God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have, for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, these are your words today to us and we ask by your spirit you would impress on our hearts and souls your teachings, but also your presence, and pray that we would leave here, Lord, being, being molded and shaped by you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, there's a story that's told of a group of tourists who were visiting a small, scenic village in Eastern Europe. And as they walked to the village, they passed by an old man sitting by a fence who was carving a piece of wood. In a rather patronizing way, one tourist asked him, were any great men born in this village? The old man replied, nope, not great men, only babies. <laughs> this is true spiritually as it is physically. Faith in Christ begins with spiritual infancy. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again means that after we are physically born, we do have an opportunity in Christ to be spiritually born again into a new life. So when we are literally, or excuse me, initially born again in Jesus Christ, we are 
spiritual babies. And what that means for spiritual babies, just like physical babies, though they might be cute beyond description, are not always so be, uh, pleasant to be around. Ray Steadman has said that a baby is a, digest a digestive apparatus with a loud noise at one end and no responsibility on the other. <laughs> babies are cute, grandbabies are too, but they are also notoriously selfish and self-centered. When they're born, the imprint uh, they bear that is still the bear that we have in the fall of Adam. Their whole world is centered around themselves. But only over time, as they grow and learn, with proper parenting and guidance and discipline, they learn self-control. They can sleep all night and feed themselves and even use the toilet. It's the same in the Christian life. We are spiritually born in Christ, but we have to also grow and mature in Christ. In 1 Peter, we read, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Um, Hebrews 5 tells us that for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works in faith toward God. One day a father was talking to his five-year-old daughter about their birthdays. Her birthday was on March 30th and his was on March 27th. And so the father said to her, my birthday is only three days before yours. The little, little girl looked at him and said, yes, but you grew much faster than I did. Sadly, many Christians do not grow as they profess their faith. The great weakness in the church is that many who claim Christ are spiritual babies all of their lives. They claim to have put their faith in Christ as their Lord and Savior, but they never go beyond that. The story is told of a man after 25 years at the same company, doing the same job for all that 25 years, went to his employer and told him he felt he was not appreciated and that he deserved a promotion. After all, he said, I've had 25 years of experience. The boss replied, no, you haven't had 25 years of experience. You've had one experience for 25 years. Many who claim Christ never move beyond their initial experience with Jesus. And our spiritual life is like that. It's a journey of faith. It has a, a birth and a beginning and a growth and a progression towards maturity and ultimately a death. But what, much too often when people come to faith, that's the end for them. And that's not what we're called to do. This was the Apostle Paul's concern for the church in Colossae. There were a lot of false teachings going on in that church, and they were being embraced, and they also people began to 
argue back and forth about how to live out your faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul knew that was happening. And as he sat in prison, he wrote this book to them and to us to teach us what it means to be a, a mature Christian. He starts off in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. A few things here at the start. Paul opens his letter with this basic greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now, Paul is not pridefully establishing his authority here over those in the church. He's simply stating the fact that God had sovereignly called him to faith in Christ and also sovereignly called him into leadership in the church and that he was sent there to help them mature. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. The word saints here is literally means holy ones, uh, meaning God not only called Paul to a mature faith, also has called all of us in the church into a mature faith. And we read, uh, Paul normally called that term saints to people in the church, but notice this time he calls them faithful saints. Now there were things going on in the church that uh, were people were having their own ideas and own interpretations, but he said that just as kind of a, caveat, faithful Christians, faithful saints. Paul encourages all those in the church to be faithful to God's calling, to be faithful to God's truth. And he emphasizes this further when he addresses those in the church as brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Now the original language in the Greek here says in Christ who are in Colossae, not at Colossae. Now, that might not seem to be a big deal, deal for us, but it is for Paul. Paul, what Paul is saying is, just like Colossians who were living in Christ as saints, as holy ones, and called and chosen by them, we are to be in Christ, not like in at Christ. Does that make the difference? Not at Colossae, but in Colossae. And we've just changed it grammatically to make the English sound better. The original language says something different. What this means, though, is to be in Christ. To live in Christ means Jesus lives in us. He lives in our entire lives. He lives in our hearts, our minds, our soul, our strength. We are in Christ. To live in Christ means the priorities and the attitudes and the behaviors of Christ should be the same priorities and attitudes and decisions and behaviors that we have in our own lives. To live in Christ means we've been adopted into a new family, a holy family, an, an eternal family. To live in Christ means we've been adopted into them. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ, in Colossae. Then he writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Though corrective in nature, Paul intended this letter to the Colossians to also be a means of grace to them so they might see their spiritual immaturity and see the misunderstandings and false beliefs so they might turn back to God 
and pursue a maturity of faith in Jesus. He also wished them peace, which is a traditional word, shalom, reflecting the harmony of wholeness of God and love to each other. Paul acknowledges here that grace and peace cannot come about by human effort, but by what? From God our Father, it says. We can only know true grace and true peace when we are in Christ by our Father. Amen? We always thank you, he said, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Excuse me, thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Paul begins the content part of his letter by thanking God. We like to be thanked and we like to thank each other, but we should always thank God. Amen? He is the author of life. He is the source of everything we have and everything we do and everything that we are. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul then praises God for his sovereign hand in the entirety of our lives. He also thanked God for faith, here it says, and love and hope, implying that God is the author and source of faith and love and hope. We always Thank God, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The faith the Apostle Paul commends here is faith in Jesus Christ. Not a faith in a person or a program or a church, but faith in Christ. And this is not a faith to be possessed and believed, but a faith which is to be a vibrant force that's passionately expressed in our life that is of mutual love for God and mutual love for one another that unites us in that as a, as a body. Jesus said this in John 13, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's that connection, that unity that we have. In these words we read of Paul thanking God that our hope is in the source of Jesus Christ. Colossians, the Colossians had faith and love because of what? Because of the hope laid up for them in heaven. Now, this is contrary to what we believe. Most of us have been taught that hope is grounded in faith and that we must have faith to have hope. But God's word says it's the other way around. Paul says that faith is grounded in hope, not the other way around. Hope in God is not a personal expectation for us, but it's an anticipated reality because our hope is in who? Jesus Christ. What is that hope? What is that anticipated reality that we're assured of that's laid up for us in heaven? Well, Paul speaks of it in Titus 2. We saw, saw that not too long ago when he said, talked about the waiting of our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's, he will say this again in Colossians 3, when Christ, is your when Christ who is in your life appears, you will then also appear with him in glory. So our assured hope is that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he is living in us. Amen? Jesus, the image of God, 
in whom all things were created, the firstborn among the dead, living and breathing, is living in us. That is the fulfillment of the gospel. That is our joyous, assured hope. For those of us in Christ, whether in Colossae or Porto Berni, this implies that we are to be continually changed and transformed inside of ourselves, inside of our hearts, inside of our lives, inside of our attitudes, so we might be more and more like the image of, the image of God that we were created for. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Our hope is the risen Christ who is laid up in heaven and who lives in us. We never go to the lives in us. We always talk about Jesus went to heaven, but he's here for all of us. Faith and love are rooted in our hope in Jesus who rose from the dead and is always working in us. Paul then writes, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul calls the reality of our faith and love that's rooted in our hope in Jesus, who rose up, into heaven and rises up in us the word of truth, the gospel. That's what he calls that. Dorothy Sayers once said, the test of any religion is not whether it pleases us or is comfortable, but whether it is true. It is true that Jesus was crucified on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Amen? It is also true that Jesus rose from the dead so that those who do open their hearts and surrender their lives to him will also rise from the dead. Amen. And it's also true Jesus lives within us as Lord and Savior. So we might live for him, so we might become more and more mature in him. Amen. That was pretty weak. The word of truth, the gospel, is real. It works. It works for me. It works for you. It works for us. It does change us. It does transform us. It continues to do that. At this very moment, it's doing that right now to, to me and you who are in Christ. Just as a tree without fruit is no longer a tree, so the gospel without the fruit of truth would no longer be the gospel. Many argue in this age of the individualism and entitlement that the gospel of Jesus Christ has lost its ability to bear fruit of God's truth. It does seem that way at times because even evangelical Christians begin to slide into their own truths relative to whether it's pragmatic for me or good for me or makes me feel good. For many Christians, biblical truth has been abdicated by personal opinion and individual preferences. But Robert Ruthnow, a sociologist of religion, wrote that spirituality is no longer true 
or good because it meets absolute standards of truth and goodness, but because it helps me get along. I am the judge of its worth. It helps me find a vacant parking lot. I know I'm on the right path. If it leads me to the wilderness to face dangers I'd rather not deal with, then I'm unlikely to choose that truth. Brothers and sisters, we must acknowledge that we live in a predominantly secular culture and we are under constant pressure to be conformed to the views, beliefs, and values of our world. And God's people in many ways, are fading fast, too, when it comes to bearing fruit for the truth of the gospel. The church is not turning the world upside down because we're too much like the world. Paul's context, brothers and sisters, is not much different than ours right now. He feared the church would choose to follow the world rather than walk with Jesus and grow up in Jesus. And once Paul heard that that was happening, he began to pray that the church would come to know the power and the joy of following Jesus because God is pleased when we live out the gospel of the work of Christ on the cross in our lives for the cause of spiritual maturity. So he writes in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul first prayed here that the church would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Knowing the will of God is how we begin to grow in Christ. But this knowledge is not a knowledge that we are to know for the sake of knowing. This is a knowledge that is to have a dramatic transforming effect, a knowing that is a result of something that we see in verse 10 as so to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Knowing God's will is where many, many Christians go astray because they think the will of God is something they must personally find and discover for themselves. They ask, what is God's will for my life. And I always tell people, that's the wrong question. The right question is simply, what is God's will? Period. The will of God is the same for all of us. It's God's will that we love God with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. Love our neighbors as ourselves. Seek first the kingdom of God. Deny ourselves, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. Love one another. Forgive one another. Bear with one another. Obey our leaders. Give joyfully and sacrificially. Serve faithfully. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, do it all for the glory of God. That's God's will for all of us. Yet, so many people want details. They want to know exactly and precisely what God's will is for them in their personal lives. And that's the problem. It's about us again. 
This is what Paul is addressing here. He knew that it's our sinful tendency to define our own self-centered gospel and prone to make up our own self-centered will of God. It's like a story of an old Scottish woman who was going house to house in the countryside selling thread and buttons and shoestrings. And she would always stop at the fork in the road and toss a stick up in the air and so wherever the stick pointed, she would go that way. One day, however, she was seen just sitting there tossing this stick over and over. And someone stopped and said, why are you still tossing that stick? Because, she said, it keeps pointing to the left and I want to go to the right. And sometimes that's probably how we do it in different ways. What happens then is we confuse God's will with our will by making our will God's will. Paul prayed that those in the church would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And so the only way we can be filled with the knowledge of his will is by having spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now the words wisdom and understanding here are are defined differently in the Greek, the original Greek, than in English. Spiritual wisdom is not an abstract theological um, knowledge that we possess and use to correct other people, but rather it's a practical application of truths and principles of God revealed to us by the Holy Spirit that regulate our thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. Spiritual wisdom is given to us by the Spirit of God so we might not correct others, but that we might correct ourselves. That's the Greek form. Spiritual understanding spoken of here is an application of God's spiritual wisdom in our lives regarding our circumstances or situations that we are in at the moment. So when we're faced with a problem or a struggle, we are to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us spiritual wisdom as to how the truths and principles of God are relating to our problem and struggle. And then secondly, we're to pray for spiritual understanding by the Spirit so we would know what action to take in doing that. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives wisdom to know what God says. And the Holy Spirit gives the one understanding of what to do with that. Paul then tells us the reason he prayed for the church would be filled full of knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom and understanding was to the people learn how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. The word walk here in the Greek literally means to order one's conduct and behavior. In the context of what we're looking at, this is when we are filled with the knowledge of his will and spiritual understanding that we would order our behavior then to begin to walk and live and grow in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, in a way that pleases him. This is exemplified in Genesis 5:24, where we read of a man named Enoch. And we read that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch was so filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding that he walked in a manner that he was so worthy of God and pleased God so much that he did not allow Enoch to die. He just took him. The word walk here signifies that we are to go on habitually toward making progress 
in our holiness. Paul tells us that when we have spiritual wisdom and understanding, it will dramatically change our lives, enabling us to walk in a manner that's fully pleasing to God. God is pleased when we live out the gospel, the work of Christ, when we pursue spiritual maturity. Paul affirms this in Philippians 2. This is another way of saying it, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God created us in this way. And the Apostle Paul tells us in this length of words here that what that looks like bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The first way way that that looks like is that we bear fruit. Now, God created us to bear fruit. The first command God gave to created creatures and created humanity was to be fruitful and multiply. And in John 15, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What kind of fruit are we to bear? The fruit of the gospel and the fruit of the Holy Spirit for the desires in our lives that God wants is every place in Scripture. I mean, the fruit of love, the fruit of peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, humility, sacrifice, self-control, compassion, encouragement, service, forgiveness, mercy, grace. We could go on and on and on. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing. The phrase every good work here is not viewed as a work that we have to do to come to faith in Christ, but rather this is the fruit of salvation in when we are saved and the fruit of maturity as we walk ever-increasing with our Lord Jesus. Paul's reference here to bearing fruit and increasing brings to mind uh, Jesus' words in Mark 12 about the sower and the seed, where the sower in the good soil soil, uh, bore fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. Bearing every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God delights in those who want to know him and understand him. God loves it when people want to go deeper with him and their relationship with him. But this is also often where we as Christians fall short because we might have a lot of knowledge about God, but we don't have a relational knowledge of God that changes our hearts and lives and souls. Knowing God in many ways is trying like to define a kiss. A great deal of what it means to kiss is lost in the translation. Kissing is something that you really have to experience it before you understand it. Amen. Amen. (laughs) The old axiom about money says that rich get, get richer and the poor get poorer. This is also true in this same spiritual sense. Just as Sin is by nature a vicious cycle of degradation. Personal, relational, knowing God is a virtuous cycle that leads us to deeper joy and a more personal presence of God in our lives. 
increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul's telling us Christianity is not a do-it-yourself religion. The only strength we have is that which comes from God, whether it could be coming to faith or pursuing a deeper walk with Jesus. Again, Paul affirms this with the words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are truly strengthened with all power by God, who does so by according to his glorious might, here it says. So here we're going to look at some Greek words again. The Greek word here for power is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite, which literally means inherent power, a power residing in a person or thing by its virtue of its nature. Here we're talking about God's power. And the Greek word for might is kratos, which means manifested power that is put forth in action. So what this looks like is what Paul is saying is spiritual growth and maturity are manifested in us and through us when we embrace God's power in us and through us for all endurance and patience with joy. So Paul here emphasizes how this works with two, two Greek words again. The Greek word here for patience is in regard to your circumstances that we can't control. And the Greek word for endurance is in regard to difficult people who you can't control. Paul's covering all the bases. It's by the strength of God's power, according to his glorious might, both in us and through us, that we can patiently endure times of trial and endure sinful struggles of others with joy. Why? Because God is supremely sovereign and providentially omnipotent over all situations and all people. Amen? There we go. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of our sins. Paul here starts with gratitude again. One of the greatest marks of spiritual maturity is gratitude. Thankfulness to God is woven all through the fabric of the Bible. Paul here thanks us by reminding us that we've been graciously transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has qualified us, he's delivered us, he's transferred us, he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, and now we belong to God in a relationship that cannot be broken. Gratitude in its deepest sense allows us to joyfully live out our lives as graceful gifts of grace from God. True gratefulness is a quiet notion. Those who humbly choose to be joyfully thankful don't call attention to themselves, but rather point people to Jesus. The power of following Jesus is the power of the gospel and the risen Christ that lives within the heart of those who are truly following Jesus. And the joy of following Jesus is the joy of pursuing spiritual maturity as God works in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure as we are filled with the knowledge of God's will, 
through his spiritual wisdom and understanding as we walk in a manner in the worthiness of Lord Je- our Lord Jesus and fully pleasing him and bearing fruit for him in every good work in everything that we know relationally about our God as we are strengthened with all power according to the glor- his glorious might so that we might endure and be patient, joyfully so, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified us to be saints with the other, with saints in heaven. So we might turn the world upside down, living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ as we passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. Brothers and sisters, God is pleased when we live out our lives for Jesus Christ. Pleased even more, more so, when we seek maturity in that. But that's not so easy. Pursuing spiritual maturity is a matter of who or what captures our heart. In a world that offers us easy access to so many immediate attractive pleasures, and much too often do we give our hearts to people and things that take less effort, less sacrifice, and are less painful than following Jesus. But Herbert Lockyer once wrote, the most difficult journey has a blessed climax when the goal is God. Say that again. The most difficult journey has a blessed climax when God is the goal. That's what we were created for. This is our call at Aerosmith Baptist Church. And the eternal destiny of our families, our friends, our community, and our world is dependent on how we respond to that. And you know what? We can respond to that call. We can. We can by the power and the joy of following Jesus. May we join with the Apostle Paul in this as he says in Philippians 3, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Amen? Amen. Father, we bless you for these words. We would ask, Lord, that you would give us a humility, but also a hunger to know more of you and have more of you and live more of you. And Lord, we know that you use people to refine and complete and accomplish your will in the sense of saving people and saving souls and saving, Lord, the world. We bless you that you have called churches to do that. And we bless you that we understand that. And now I ask that by your blessing and your spirit, you would enable us and lead us and help us. And so we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.